0: It's the Alien Conspiracy Podcast. I am your host, Agent Anderson. Come along as we examine UFO sightings, conspiracies, and all things strange. This week, Chapter 4 of The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects by Edward J. Ruppelt. Before I get started, I'd like to give a quick shout-out to Australia. Got some new listeners there last week. So hello, Australia. Chapter 4. Green Fireballs, Project Twinkle, Little Lights, and Grudge. At exactly midnight on September 18, 1954, my telephone rang. It was Jim Phelan, a friend of mine from the Long Beach Press-Telegram, and he had a good flying saucer report, hot off the wires. He read it to me. The lead line was, Thousands of people saw a huge fireball light up the dark New Mexico skies tonight. The story went on to tell about how a blinding green fireball the size of a full moon had silently streaked southeast across Colorado and northern New Mexico at 8.40 that night. Thousands of people had seen the fireball. It had passed right over a crowded football stadium at Santa Fe, New Mexico, and people in Denver said it turned night into day. The crew of a TWA airliner flying into Albuquerque from Amarillo, Texas saw it, Every police and newspaper switchboard in the two-state area was jammed with calls. One of the calls was from a man inquiring if anything unusual had happened recently. When he was informed about the mysterious fireball, he heaved an audible sigh of relief. Thanks, he said. I was afraid I'd gotten some bad bourbon. And he hung up. Dr. Lincoln LaPaz, world-famous authority on meteorites and head of the University of New Mexico's Institute of Meteoritics apparently took the occurrence calmly. The Wire story said he had told a reporter that he would plot its course, try to determine where it landed, and go out and try to find it. But, he said, I don't expect to find anything. When Jim Phelan had read the rest of the report, he asked, What was it? It sounds to me like the green fireballs are back, I answered. What the devil are green fireballs? What the devil are green fireballs? I'd like to know. So would a lot of other people. The green fireballs streaked into UFO history in late November 1948, when people around Albuquerque, New Mexico, began to report seeing mysterious green flares at night. The first reports mentioned only a green streak in the sky, low on the horizon. From the description, the Air Force intelligence people at Kirkland Air Force Base in Albuquerque and the project Sign people at ATIC wrote the objects off as flares. After all, Thousands of G.I.s had probably been discharged with a duffel bag full of liberated very pistols and flares. But as days passed, the reports got better. They seemed to indicate that the flares were getting larger, and more people were reporting seeing them. It was doubtful if this growth was psychological because there had been no publicity, so the Air Force decided to reconsider the flare answer. They were in the process of doing this on the night of December 5, 1948, a memorable night in the Green Fireball chapter of UFO history. At 9.27 p.m. on December 5th, an Air Force C-47 transport was flying at 18,000 feet, 10 miles east of Albuquerque. The pilot was a Captain Goad. Suddenly the crew, Captain Goad, his co-pilot, and his engineer were startled by a green ball of fire flashing across the sky ahead of them. It looked something like a huge meteor, except that it was a bright green color and it didn't arch downward, as meteors usually do. The green-colored ball of fire had started low, from near the eastern slopes of the Sandia Mountains, arched upward a little, then seemed to level out. And it was too big for a meteor, at least it was larger than any meteor that anyone in the C-47 had ever seen before. After a hasty discussion, the crew decided that they'd better tell somebody about it, especially since they had seen an identical object 22 minutes before near Las Vegas, New Mexico. Captain Goad picked up his microphone and called the control tower at Kirtland Air Force Base and reported what he and his crew had seen. The tower relayed the message to the local intelligence people. A few minutes later, the captain of Pioneer Airlines Flight 63 called Kirtland Tower. At 9.35 p.m., He had also seen a green ball of fire just east of Las Vegas, New Mexico. He was on his way to Albuquerque and would make a full report when he landed. When he taxied his DC-3 up to the passenger ramp at Kirtland a few minutes later, several intelligence officers were waiting for him. He reported that at 9.35pm, he was on a westerly heading approaching Las Vegas from the east, when he and his co-pilot saw what they first thought was a shooting star. It was ahead and a little above them, but, the captain said, it took them only a split second to realize that whatever they saw was too low and had too flat a trajectory to be a meteor. As they watched, the object seemed to approach their airplane head on, changing color from orange, red, to green. As it became bigger and bigger, the captain said he thought sure it was going to collide with them, so he racked the DC-3 up in a tight turn. As the green ball of fire got abreast of them, it began to fall toward the ground, getting dimmer and dimmer until it disappeared. Just before he swerved the DC-3, the fireball was as big or bigger than a full moon. The intelligence officers asked a few more questions and went back to their office. More reports, which had been phoned in from all over northern New Mexico, were waiting for them. By morning, a full-fledged investigation was underway. No matter what these green fireballs were, the military was getting a little edgy. They might be common meteorites, psychologically enlarged flares, or true UFOs. But whatever they were, they were playing around in one of the most sensitive security areas in the United States. Within a 100 miles of Albuquerque were two installations that were the backbone of the atomic bomb program, Los Alamos and Sandia Base. Scattered throughout the countryside were other installations vital to the defense of the U.S. Radar stations, fighter intercept bases, and the other mysterious areas that had been blocked off by high chain-link fences. Since the green fireballs bore some resemblance to meteors or meteorites, the Kirtland intelligence officers called in Dr. Lincoln LaPaz. Dr. LaPaz said that he would be glad to help, so the officers explained the strange series of events to him. True, he said the description of the fireballs did sound as if they might be meteorites, except for a few points. One way to be sure was to try to plot the flight path of the green fireballs the same way he had so successfully plotted the flight path of meteorites in the past. From this flight path, he could determine where they would have hit the earth, if they were meteorites. They would search this area, and if they found parts of a meteorite, they would have the answer to the green fireball riddle. The fireball activity on the night of December 5th was made to order for plotting flight paths. The good reports of that night included carefully noted locations, the directions in which the green objects were seen, their heights above the horizon, and the times when they were observed. So early the next morning, Dr. LaPaz and a crew of intelligence officers were scouting northern New Mexico. They started out by talking to the people who had made reports but soon found out that dozens of other people had also seen the fireballs. By closely checking the time of the observations, they determined that eight separate fireballs had been seen. One was evidently more spectacular and was seen by the most people. Everyone in northern New Mexico had seen it going from west to east, so Dr. LaPaz and his crew worked eastward across New Mexico to the west border of Texas, talking to dozens of people, After many sleepless hours, they finally plotted where it should have struck the earth. They searched the area, but found nothing. They went back over the area time and time again. Nothing. As Dr. LaPaz later told me, this was the first time that he seriously doubted the green fireballs were meteorites. Within a few more days, the fireballs were appearing almost nightly. The intelligence officers from Kirtland decided that maybe they could get a good look at one of them. So on the night of December 8, two officers took off in an airplane just before dark and began to cruise around north of Albuquerque. They had a carefully worked out plan where each man would observe certain details if they saw one of the green fireballs. At 6.33 p.m., they saw one. This is their report. At 6.33 p.m., while flying at an indicated altitude of 11,000 feet, A strange phenomenon was observed. Exact position of the aircraft at time of the observation was 20 miles east of the Las Vegas, New Mexico radio range station. The aircraft was on a compass course of 90 degrees. Captain blank was pilot and I was acting as co-pilot. I first observed the object and a split second later the pilot saw it. It was 2,000 feet higher than the plane and was approaching the plane at a rapid rate of speed from 30 degrees to the left of our course. The object was similar in appearance to a burning green flare, the kind that is commonly used in the Air Force. However, the light was much more intense and the object appeared considerably larger than a normal flare. The trajectory of the object, when first sighted, was almost flat and parallel to the Earth. The phenomenon lasted about two seconds. At the end of this time, the object seemed to begin to burn out and the trajectory then dropped off rapidly. The phenomenon was of such intensity as to be visible from the very moment it ignited. Back at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, ATIC was getting a blow-by-blow account of the fireball activity, but they were taking no direct part in the investigation. Their main interest was to review all incoming UFO reports and see if the green fireball reports were actually unique to the Albuquerque area. They were. Although a good many UFO reports were coming in from other parts of the U.S., none fit the description of the green fireballs. All during December 1948 and January 1949, the green fireballs continued to invade the New Mexico skies. Everyone, including the intelligence officers at Kirtland Air Force Base, Air Defense Command people, Dr. La Paz, and some of the most distinguished scientists at Los Alamos had seen at least one. In mid-February 1949, a conference was called at Los Alamos to determine what should be done to further pursue the investigation. The Air Force, Project Sign, the intelligence people at Kirtland, and other interested parties had done everything they could think of and still no answer. Such notable scientists as Dr. Joseph Kaplan, a world-renowned authority on the physics of the upper atmosphere, Dr. Edward Teller of the H-bomb fame, and of course Dr. Lapaz attended, along with a lot of military brass and scientists from Los Alamos. This was one conference where there was no need to discuss whether or not this special type of UFO, the green fireball, existed. Almost everyone at the meeting had seen one. The purpose of the conference was to decide whether the fireballs were natural or man-made and how to find out more about them. As happens in any conference, opinions were divided. Some people thought the green fireballs were natural fireballs. The proponents of the natural meteor, or meteorite, theory presented facts that they had dug out of astronomical journals. Green-colored meteors, although not common, had been observed on many occasions. The flat trajectory, which seemed to be so important in proving that the green fireballs were extraterrestrial, was also nothing new. When viewed from certain angles, a meteor can appear to have a flat trajectory— The reason that so many had been seen during December of 1948 and January of 1949 was that the weather had been unusually clear all over the southwest during this period. Dr. LaPaz led the group who believed that the green fireballs were not meteors or meteorites. His argument was derived from the facts that he had gained after many days of research and working with Air Force intelligence teams. He stuck to the points that, one, their trajectory was too flat, two, the color was too green, and three, he couldn't locate any fragments even though he had found the spots where they should have hit the Earth if they were meteorites. People who were at that meeting have told me that Dr. LaPaz's theory was very interesting and that each point was carefully considered. But evidently it wasn't conclusive enough because when the conference broke up after two days, it was decided that the green fireballs were a natural phenomenon of some kind. It was recommended that this phase of the UFO investigation be given to the Air Force's Cambridge Research Laboratory, since it is the function of this group to study natural phenomena and that Cambridge set up a project to attempt to photograph the green fireballs and measure their speed, altitude, and size. In the late summer of 1949, Cambridge established Project Twinkle to solve the mystery. The project called for establishing three Sinatheodolite stations near White Sands, New Mexico. A Sinatheodolite is similar to a 35mm movie camera, except when you take a photograph of an object, you also get a photograph of three dials that show the time the photo was taken, the azimuth angle, and the elevation angle of the camera. If two or more cameras photograph the same object, It is possible to obtain a very accurate measurement of the photographed object's altitude, speed, and size. Project Twinkle was a bust. Absolutely nothing was photographed. Of the three cameras that were planned for the project, only one was available. This one camera was continually being moved from place to place. If several reports came from a certain area, the camera crew would load up their equipment and move to that area, always arriving too late any duck hunter can tell you that this is the wrong tactic. If you want to shoot any ducks, pick a good place and stay put. Let the ducks come to you. The people trying to operate Project Twinkle were having financial and moral trouble. To do a good job, they needed more and better equipment and more people, but the Air Force budget cuts precluded this. Moral support was free, but they didn't get this either. When the Korean War started, Project Twinkle silently died, along with official interest in green fireballs. When I organized Project Blue Book in the summer of 1951, I'd never heard of a green fireball. We had a few files marked Los Alamos Conference, fireballs, Project Twinkle, etc., but I didn't pay any attention to them. Then one day, I was at a meeting in Los Angeles with several other officers from ATIC and was introduced to Dr. Joseph Kaplan. When he found we were from ATIC, his first question was, what ever happened to the green fireballs? None of us had ever heard of them, so he quickly gave us the story. He and I ended up discussing green fireballs. He mentioned Dr. LaPaz and his opinion that the green fireballs might be man-made, and although he respected LaPaz's professional ability, he just wasn't convinced. But he did strongly urge me to get in touch with Dr. LaPaz and hear his side of the story. When I returned to ATIC, I I spent several days digging into our collection of Green Fireball reports. All of these reports covered a period from early December 1948 to 1949. As far as Blue Book's files were concerned, there hadn't been a Green Fireball report for a year and a half. I read over the report on Project Twinkle and the few notes we had on the Los Alamos conference and decided that the next time I went to Albuquerque, I'd contact Dr. LaPaz. I did go to Albuquerque several times, but my visits were always short and I was always in a hurry, so I didn't get to see him. It was six or eight months later before the subject of green fireballs came up again. I was eating lunch with a group of people at the AEC's Los Alamos Laboratory when one of the group mentioned the mysterious Kelly Green Balls of Fire. The strictly unofficial bull session-type discussion that followed took up the entire lunch hour and several hours of the afternoon. It was an interesting discussion because these people, all scientists and technicians from the lab, had a few educated guesses as to what they might be. All of them had seen a green fireball, some of them had seen several. One of the men, a private pilot, had encountered a fireball one night while he was flying his Navian north of Santa Fe, and he had a vivid way of explaining what he'd seen. Take a softball and paint it with some kind of fluorescent paint that will glow a bright green in the dark. I remember his saying, then have someone take the ball out about 100 feet in front of you and about 10 feet above you. Have him throw the ball right at your face, as hard as he can throw it. That's what a green fireball looks like. The speculation about what the green fireballs were ran through the usual spectrum of answers, a new type of natural phenomenon, a secret U.S. development, and psychologically enlarged meteors. When the possibility of the green fireballs being associated with interplanetary vehicles came up, the whole group got serious. They had been doing a lot of thinking about this, they said, and they had a theory. The green fireballs, they theorized, could be some type of unmanned test vehicle that was being projected into our atmosphere from a spaceship hovering several hundred miles above the Earth. Two years ago, I would have been amazed to hear a group of reputable scientists make such a startling statement. Now, however, I took it as a matter of course. I had heard the same type of statement many times before from equally qualified groups. Turn the tables, they said. Suppose that we are going to try to go to a far planet. There would be three phases to the trip. Out through the Earth's atmosphere, through space— and the re-entry into the atmosphere of the planet we're planning to land on. The first two phases would admittedly present formidable problems, but the last phase, the re-entry phase, would be the most critical. Coming in from outer space, the craft would, for all practical purposes, be similar to a meteorite except that it would be powered and not free-falling. You would have myriad problems associated with aerodynamic heating, high aerodynamic loadings, And very probably a host of other problems that no one can now conceive of. Certain of these problems could be partially solved by laboratory experimentation, but nothing can replace flight testing and the results obtained by flight tests in our atmosphere would not be valid in another type of atmosphere. The most logical way to overcome this difficulty would be to build our interplanetary vehicle, go to the planet that we were interested in landing on, and hover several hundred miles up. From this altitude, we could send instrumental test vehicles down to the planet. If we didn't want the inhabitants of the planet, if it were inhabited, to know what we were doing, we could put destruction devices in the test vehicles, or arrange the test so that the test vehicles would just plain burn up at a certain point due to aerodynamic heating. They continued, each man injecting his ideas. Maybe the green fireballs are test vehicles. Somebody else's. The regular UFO reports might be explained by the fact that the manned vehicles were venturing down to within 100,000 or 200,000 feet of the Earth, or to the altitude at which atmosphere re entry begins to get critical. I had to go down to the airstrip to get a cargo airlines plane back to Albuquerque, so I didn't have time to ask a lot of questions that came into my mind. I did get to make one comment. From the conversations, I assumed that these people didn't think the green fireballs were any kind of natural phenomenon. Not exactly, they said, but so far the evidence that said they were a natural phenomenon was vastly outweighed by the evidence that said they weren't. During the kidney-jolting trip down the valley from Los Alamos to Albuquerque in one of the cargo airline's bonanzas, I decided I'd stay over an extra day and talk to Dr. La Paz. He knew every detail there was to know about the green fireballs. He confirmed my findings, that the genuine green fireballs were no longer being seen. He said that he'd received hundreds of reports, especially after he'd written several articles about the mysterious fireballs, but that all of the reported objects were just greenish-colored, common, everyday meteors. Dr. LaPaz said that some people, including Dr. Joseph Kaplan and Dr. Edward Teller, thought that the green fireballs were natural meteors. He didn't think so, however, for several reasons. First, the color was so much different. To illustrate this point, Dr. LaPaz opened his desk drawer and took out a well-worn chart of the color spectrum. He checked off two shades of green, one a pale, almost yellowish green, and the other a much more distinct, vivid green. He pointed to the bright green and told me that this was the color of the green fireballs. He'd taken this chart with him when he went out to talk to people who had seen the green fireballs, and everyone had picked this one color. The pale green, he explained, was the color in the cases of documented green meteors. Then there were other points of dissimilarity between a meteor and the green fireballs. The trajectory of the fireballs was too flat. Dr. LaPaz explained that a meteor doesn't necessarily have to arch down across the sky. Its trajectory can appear to be flat but not as flat as that of the green fireballs. Then there was the size. Almost always such descriptive words as terrifying, as big as the moon, and blinding, had been used to describe the fireballs. Meteors just aren't this big and bright. No, Dr. LaPaz didn't think that they were meteors. Dr. LaPaz didn't believe that they were meteorites either. A meteorite is accompanied by sound and shock waves that break windows and stampede cattle. Yet in every case of a green fireball sighting, the observers reported that they did not hear any sound. But the biggest mystery of all was the fact that no particles of a green fireball had ever been found. If they were meteorites, Dr. LaPaz was positive that he would have found one. He'd missed very few times in the cases of known meteorites. He pulled a map out of his file to show me what he meant. It was a map that he had used to plot the spot where a meteorite had hit the earth. I believe it was in Kansas. The map had been prepared from information he had obtained from dozens of people who had seen the meteorite come flaming toward the earth. At each spot where an observer was standing, he'd drawn in the observer's line of sight to the meteorite. From the dozens of observers, he had obtained dozens of lines of sight. The lines all converged to give Dr. LaPaz a plot of the meteorite's downward trajectory. Then he had been able to plot the spot where it had struck the earth. He and his crew went to the marked area, probed the ground with long steel poles, and found the meteorite. This was just one case that he showed me. He had records of many more similar successful expeditions in his file. Then he showed me some other maps. The plotted lines looked identical to the ones on the map I'd just seen. Dr. LaPaz had used the same techniques on these plots and had marked an area where he wanted to search. He had searched the area many times, but he had never found anything. These were plots of the path of a green fireball. When Dr. LaPaz had finished, I had one last question. What do you think they are? He weighed the question for a few seconds. Then he said that all he cared to say was that he didn't think that they were a natural phenomenon. He thought that maybe someday one would hit the earth and the mystery would be solved. He hoped that they were a natural phenomenon. After my talk with Dr. LaPaz, I can well understand his apparent calmness on the night of September 18, 1954, when the newspaper reporter called him to find out if he planned to investigate this latest green fireball report. He was speaking from experience, not indifference, when he said, but I don't expect to find anything. If the green fireballs are back, I hope that Dr. LaPaz gets an answer this time. The story of the UFO now goes back to late January 1949, the time when the Air Force was in the midst of the green fireball mystery. In another part of the country, another odd series of events was taking place. The center of activity was a highly secret area that can't be named, and the recipient of the UFOs, which were formations of little lights, was the U.S. Army. The series of incidents started when military patrols, who were protecting the area began to report seeing formations of lights flying through the night sky. At first, the lights were reported every three or four nights, but inside of two weeks, the frequency had stepped up. Before long, they were a nightly occurrence. Some patrols reported that they had seen three or four formations in one night. The sightings weren't restricted to the men on patrol. One night, just at dusk, during retreat, the entire garrison watched a formation pass directly over the post-parade ground. As usual with UFO reports, the descriptions of the lights varied, but the majority of the observers reported a V formation of three lights. As the formation moved through the sky, the lights changed in color from a bluish-white to orange and back to bluish-white. This color cycle took about two seconds. The lights usually traveled from west to east and made no sound. They didn't streak across the sky like a meteor, but they were going faster than a jet. The lights were a little bigger than the biggest star. Once in a while, the G.I.s would get binoculars on them, but they couldn't see any more details. The lights just looked bigger. From the time of the first sighting, reports of the little lights were being sent to the Air Force through Army Intelligence Channels. The reports were getting to ATIC, but the green fireball activity was taking top billing and no comments went back to the Army about their little lights. According to an Army G2 major, to whom I talked in the Pentagon, this silence was taken to mean that no action, other than sending in reports, was necessary on the part of the Army. But after about two weeks of nightly sightings and no apparent action by the Air Force, The commander of the installation decided to take the initiative and set a trap. His staff worked out a plan in record time. Special UFO patrols would be sent out into the security area and they would be furnished with sighting equipment. This could be the equipment that they normally used for fire control. Each patrol would be sent to a specific location and would set up a command post. Operating out of the command post at points where the sky could be observed would be sighting teams. Each team had sighting equipment to measure the elevation and azimuth angle of the UFO. Four men were to be on each team, an instrument man, a timer, a recorder, and a radio operator. All of the UFO patrols would be assigned to special radio frequencies. The operating procedure would be that when one sighting team spotted a UFO, the radio operator would call out his team's location, the location of the UFO in the sky, and the direction it was going. All of the other teams from his patrol would thus know when to look for the UFO and begin to sight on it. While the radio man was reporting, the instrument man on the team would line up the UFO and begin to call out the angles of elevation and azimuth. The timer would call out the time. The recorder would write all of this down. The command post, upon hearing the report of the UFO, would call the next patrol and tell them. They too would try to pick it up here was an excellent opportunity to get some concrete data on at least one type of UFO. It was something that should have been done from the start. Speeds, altitudes, and sizes that are estimated just by looking at a UFO are miserably inaccurate. But if you could accurately establish that some type of object was traveling 30,000 miles an hour, or even 3,000 miles an hour, through our atmosphere, the UFO story would be the biggest story since the creation. The plan seemed foolproof and had the full support of every man who was to participate. For the first time in history, every GI wanted to get on the patrols. The plan was quickly written up as a field order, approved, and mimeographed. Since the Air Force had the prime responsibility for the UFO investigation, it was decided that the plan should be quickly coordinated with the Air Force, so a copy was rushed to them. Time was critical because every group of nightly reports might be the last. Everything was ready to roll the minute the Air Force said go. The Air Force didn't okay the plan. I don't know where the plan was killed or who killed it, but it was killed. Its death caused two reactions. Many people thought that the plan was killed so that too many people wouldn't find out the truth about UFOs. Others thought... Somebody was just plain stupid. Neither was true. The answer was simply that the official attitude toward UFOs had drastically changed in the past few months. They didn't exist. They couldn't exist. It was the belief at ATIC that the one last mystery, the green fireballs, had been solved a few days before at Los Alamos. The fireballs were meteors, and Project Twinkle would prove it. Any further investigation by the Army would be a waste of time and effort. This drastic change in official attitude is as difficult to explain as it was difficult for many people who knew what was going on inside Project Sign to believe. I use the words official attitude because at this time, UFOs had become as controversial a subject as they are today. All through intelligence circles, people had chosen sides, and the two UFO factions that exist today were born. On one side was the faction that still believed in flying saucers. These people, come hell or high water, were hanging on to their original ideas. Some thought that the UFOs were interplanetary spaceships. Others weren't quite as bold and just believed that a good deal more should be known about the UFOs before they were so completely written off. These people weren't a bunch of nuts or crackpots either. They ranged down through the ranks from generals and top-grade civilians. On the outside, their views were backed up by civilian scientists. On the other side were those who didn't believe in flying saucers. At one time, many of them had been believers. When the UFO reports were pouring in back in 1947 and 1948, they were just as sure that the UFOs were real as the people they were now scoffing at but they had changed their minds. Some of them had changed their minds because they had seriously studied the UFO reports and just couldn't see any evidence that the UFOs were real. But many of them could see the I don't believe bandwagon pulling out in front and just jumped on. This change in the operating policy of the UFO project was so pronounced that I, like so many other people, wondered if there was a hidden reason for the change. Was it actually an attempt to go underground, to make the project more secretive? Was it an effort to cover up the fact that UFOs were proven to be interplanetary and that this should be withheld from the public at all cost to prevent a mass panic? The UFO files are full of references to the near-mass panic of October 30, 1938, when Orson Welles presented his now-famous The War of the Worlds broadcast. This period of mind-changing bothered me. Here were people deciding that there was nothing to this UFO business right at a time when the reports seemed to be getting better. From what I could see, if there was any mind-changing to be done, it should have been the other way. Skeptics should have been changing to believers. Maybe I was just playing the frontman to a big cover-up. I didn't like it because if somebody up above me knew that UFOs were really spacecraft, I could make a big fool out of myself if the truth came out. I checked into this thoroughly. I spent a lot of time talking to people who had worked on Project Grudge. The anti-saucer faction was born because of an old psychological trait. People don't like to be losers. To be a loser makes one feel inferior and incompetent. On September 23, 1947, when the chief of ATIC sent a letter to the commanding general of the Army Air Forces, stating that UFOs were real, intelligence committed themselves. They had to prove it. They tried for a year and a half with no success. Officers on top began to get anxious, and the press began to get anxious. They wanted an answer. Intelligence had tried one answer— the then-top-secret estimate of the situation that proved that UFOs were real. But it was kicked back. The people on the UFO project began to think maybe the brass didn't consider them too sharp, so they tried a new hypothesis. UFOs don't exist. In no time, they found that this was easier to prove, and it got recognition. Before, if an especially interesting UFO report came in, and the Pentagon wanted an answer, all they'd get was an it could be real, but we can't prove it. Now such a request got a quick, snappy, it was a balloon, and feathers were struck in caps from ATIC up to the Pentagon. Everybody felt fine. In early 1949, the term new look was well known. The new look in women's fashions was the lower hemlines. In automobiles, it was the longer lines. In UFO circles, the new look was Cussum. The new look in UFOs was officially acknowledged on February 11, 1949, when an order was written that changed the name of the UFO project from Project Sign to Project Grudge. The order was supposedly written because the classified name, Project Sign, had been compromised. This was always my official answer to any questions about the name change. I'd go further and say that the names of the projects, first sign, then grudge, had no significance. This wasn't true. They did have significance, a lot of it. All right, that's the end of Chapter 4. Thanks for listening. Tune in next time for Chapter 5, The Dark Ages. You can follow the show on Twitter at AlienConPod. We also have an email alienconpod at protonmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Before I wrap it up, I'd like to talk a little bit about the end of the chapter where RuPolt asks those questions. Supposedly, RuPolt had to get this book approved by the Air Force before he could publish it. And also supposedly, he wasn't able to make certain statements in the book that he wanted to make. His way around that was by asking questions instead of posing the information as statements. For example, one of the questions suggests that Project Blue Book, Grudge, and Sign were not really to investigate UFOs, but more designed to debunk them. Remember, he asks the question, was there somebody higher up who was directing things? He doesn't answer that question. But if he had just come out and said, somebody higher up was directing us to debunk this stuff, and that's why we changed our ideas, the book would not have gotten published. Now, I don't know if this is true or not, but the rumor is that in order to get his book published, he had to ask these things as questions instead of saying them outright. So take it with a grain of salt. But it also makes the book a little more interesting because you have to read between the lines to see what Rupold is really trying to tell us.